Well, thanks everyone for joining for our latest podcast. We took last month off, but we're back uh, in April. <laughs> and thanks for thanks for joining. So today we have a very special guest, Richard Rossi, the author of The Color of Law. Richard, thanks for being with us. Thank you. And of course, Maurice is here as well. Nice to be with you. Thanks for being with us, uh, um, Richard. So, Richard, I mean, the book has gotten a lot of buzz, and uh, and you know, we've certainly been trying to do our part at LISC to promote the the book, its themes, and educate really the populace about a lot of the history that you describe. So, you know, very high level. If you could just give us um, or remind us, really, of a, a quick. Uh, high-level takeaway from some of the themes of the book, and then, and just, what's the response been like? I know you've been traveling around the country, and, and how are people receiving this information? Uh, sure, Morgan. Uh, the the um, the argument of the book is that we have an unconstitutional system of residential segregation in this country. It's an apartheid system. Uh, we have a national myth that uh, residential segregation occurred by accident. We call it de facto segregation. But that's not, in fact, how it occurred. Um, it was created explicitly with a racially explicit purpose by federal and state governments to ensure that African-Americans and whites could not live near one another in any metropolitan area in this country. Because it was created by government, it's an unconstitutional system. And as American citizens, we have an obligation to remedy it. Uh, that won't happen until people understand this history and understand their obligation and a new civil rights movement emerges to uh, demand its uh, redress. Uh, the response to the book has been quite stunning to me. Uh, I did not expect it, but uh, so many people, really, I've been traveling around the country and everywhere I go, people are stunned to learn this history. Uh, they all, the most common reaction is, how could I have not have known this? Mm-hmm. And it's a reasonable reaction. It's the same reaction I had when I did this research, because this was not hidden. The uh, subtitle of the book is A Forgotten History of How Our Government Segregated America. It was all quite out in the open when the Federal Housing Administration created suburbs explicitly for whites only and prohibited African Americans from participating in the suburbanization of the country. That was well known to everybody who bought one of those homes. The, The FHA required the deeds to their homes Uh, have a clause prohibiting resale to African-Americans or rental to African-Americans. When public housing was created in the 1930s and and 40s, on a segregated basis everywhere in the country, frequently segregating neighborhoods that hadn't previously been segregated, uh, mostly for for whites, not for African-Americans, but whites and blacks both knew that uh, when they were being directed to an all-white or an all-black project, that this wasn't something by accident. It was an explicit federal and state local policy. So this right. was once well-known, but the, the people are, are – uh, we've forgotten it. And why do you think it's been forgotten? And this could be for both of you. I mean, yeah, like you said, it's out in the open. This was all being done uh, <laughs> by governmental institutions. It, it was forgotten because if we understand this history, we have it's, it follows – that we have an obligation to redress it, as we would for any civil rights violation. Uh, The Constitution requires us as American citizens to redress civil rights violations. So once we know this history, it entails an obligation, and it's a hard thing to do. And so we've adopted a rationalization, a myth, a national myth. We call it de facto segregation, that Mm -hmm. all happened by accident, because that excuses us from taking action to redress it. And I, I would just build on that 
We are also, um, and Richard, tell me if you think this is right. I think we're also living under the illusion that we have addressed it, that, you know, segregation is no longer legally permissible, that you can't affirmatively segregate folks anymore. And so there's an illusion that the work is done, that the business is finished. But what people are failing to understand is we segregated for years, for decades. And you could not just say no more segregation going forward and cure that ill. You had to actually say not only are we going to no longer segregate going forward, but we've got to go back and literally desegregate. Now, we did that or tried to do it with schools, but you can see it didn't work in schools either because schools are just a symptom of where we live. We've never tried to really, as a, um, as a nationwide policy, desegregate housing. Mm-hmm. And so I think it's not only that um, people uh, have sort of forgotten about it. It's actually that we're living, it's even worse, we're living under the illusion that we fixed it. Um, and that illusion is is preventing us from doing more where we need to do more. Well, I think you're absolutely right about that. Uh, once we establish uh, structures of segregation that are as powerful as the ones we established by government in the 20th century, you can have race-neutral policies um, that can't undo it, that simply reinforce it. So, for example, uh, we passed the Fair Housing Act in 1968 that says, you know, okay, African-Americans, you now can move to these suburbs that we created uh, on an exclusive basis in the mid-20th century. But those suburbs, which were affordable to working-class families in the, when they were created by the federal government for whites only, are no longer affordable to working-class mm-hmm. families of any race today. So simply giving people the right to move to communities that are no longer affordable to them, but that would have been affordable had they been permitted to do so when um, the, the suburbs were created on a white basis, that doesn't solve the problem. Yeah. And Levittown is the example I always use of this. Uh, Levittown, east of New York City, the, one of the biggest suburbs that was created, it's in an area that's about 15% African-American, 20% African-American. We have to assume that had the Levittown been financed by the federal government on a non-discriminatory basis, that maybe the population of Levittown would be 15% or so. Well, as a result of the Fair Housing Act that was passed 50 years ago, the black population of Levittown is now 2 or 3%. So the difference between the 15% that we would expect if it hadn't been established unconstitutionally and the 2 or 3% that exists now is the remedy that we haven't embraced. And what it would look like, I know both of you kind of referenced there would be some benefit to desegregate or addressing this desegregation uh, in the housing to bring more integrated neighborhoods? Is that fair to say? Um, but what does that look like? I know there's some ideas out there that talk about trying to move people or, or what's happening, people moving into suburbs to get into a better school system, try to get housing. But controversial, I think some would say. What are your thoughts on that? Like, if we all agree that desegregation should be a priority of housing, then how does how do we go about doing that? Well, the policies, you'll forgive me if I say, for saying this, but the policies are easy. 
Housing mm-hmm. experts know exactly what we could and should do to redress it. What's missing is the political will, a new civil rights movement that's going to demand the redress of segregation. So, for example, the example I just gave, those homes in, in, um, in places like Levittown, but in suburbs all over the country that sold in the mid-20th century at affordable prices for, for working-class families was $100,000 roughly in today's money. They now sell for perhaps, well, in Levittown, $400,000, $500,000. Same is true in suburbs everywhere. The federal government should be buying up homes in Levittown to make up uh, the difference between that 15% and the 3% I described, buying them up at market rates and reselling them to qualified African-Americans for $100,000. That would be an easy policy. Uh, short of that, I mean, easy conceptually, not politically. <laughs> yeah, right. uh, short of that, we should be prohibiting zoning ordinances in these suburbs that are racially exclusive, uh, that were created on an unconstitutional basis, and the zoning ordinances that now prohibit the construction of anything but single-family homes on large lot sizes, those should be seen as perpetuating an unconstitutional situation. We should require all suburban communities to um, permit the construction of townhouses and affordable housing, uh, and even single-family homes on small lot sizes. At the lower end, and I know that LISC is very concerned about this, at the lower end we have uh, programs for um, affordable housing. Uh, Almost all of those programs reinforce segregation today because uh, most low-income housing tax credit programs that you're very much involved in wind up placing those projects in existing low-income neighborhoods. I know that many LISC uh, uh, centers are are trying to... uh, place more of them in high-opportunity communities, and we should be doing that. But the program is structured uh, to place a priority on reinforcing segregation by placing those projects in low-income communities. We should change those priorities in federal regulations uh, and in local quality uh, uh, QIPs uh, so that we place a priority on placing more of those projects and mixed-income projects, by the way, not the concentrated poverty projects in the middle middle-class communities, but mixed-income projects in high-opportunity places. We should reform the Section 8 program so that it doesn't wind up reinforcing segregation because landlords under the law are permitted to uh, refuse to accept Section 8 voucher holders. It's not considered discrimination, uh, even though it's only a cover, typically, for uh, discriminating against minority families. Uh, we should prohibit source of income is the technical term for it, source of income discrimination. So the policies to to redress this, like I say, are easy to understand. What's absent is the political will. And I'd I'd go further. Um, I mean, most of what Richard is is chatting about is public policy. There's also private policies, right? Uh, Look at the race for Amazon. Right. Mm-hmm. Uh, look at the difference an Amazon could make or fill in the blank about these location decisions if private companies also decided that, you know what, we're going to invest in these communities. We're going to put jobs in these communities. If if we fixed schools in these communities, all these assets that people move their homes for or decide uh, where to make living decisions on the basis of if we actually, through the private sector and the public sector, placed more assets in these communities, 
that people make housing decisions on the basis of, you would also see changes in those communities. Now, the question is how you do that and not displace the folks that are already there as well. So you've got to work on both at the same time. But the bottom line is, uh, I I agree, the, the public and the private actions and policies necessary to do it are not a secret. Mm-hmm. What's missing is both a will in the public sector and the private sector, and we've got to uh, we've got to have um, a bigger movement in both places if we're going to really make sustainable impact. Here. But, but with either of the things that you all have mentioned, um, or, or all of the things I should say, they're, they're kind of starting at like point now. So would would these policies actually get at what Richard you've identified as one of the biggest harms that there's been the denial of wealth accumulation for Black people in America? If you're dealing with the housing issues as we stand today and thinking about forward looking policies, well, the first policy I mentioned to you before would directly address the wealth uh, issue that you talked about. If African Americans were subsidized. Uh, to purchase for $100,000 homes that are marketed now for $400,000, $500,000. That would immediately transfer some wealth to those families. Uh, If I may, uh, Morgan, can I address the the displacement issue that Maurice just mentioned? Mm -hmm. Uh, Again, we know what the policies are to uh, transform gentrification, um, as it's commonly called, and and the, the investment in those communities from a negative force to a positive force. We can preserve the right of many families to remain in these communities so they become mixed-income, healthy communities. Or we can do it with rent control. We can do it by limiting condominium conversions. We can do it with inclusionary zoning ordinances that require any new developments to have a share of housing for low-income families, uh, typically the previous residents. And we can freeze property taxes for existing homeowners in these communities Mm -hmm. so that they're not forced to leave their homes because their property taxes rise as the community improves. So, again, the policies to to control displacement are easy to figure out. What's hard is the political... Yeah, I I, I agree with that. I agree with that. Um, Let me also comment on, uh, in addition to homeownership, look, the other issue that's needed is... Uh, black and brown-owned businesses, mm-hmm. right? And we know how to launch businesses. We know how to create entrepreneur funds and incubators and and venture capital funds. And we know how to do that and to target it to these places. Mm-hmm. And yes, those would be um, actions that would get right at this issue. Um, and we know how to do it. We need the will and the investment from both the public and the private sector to do it. So to both of you, from List Perspective, Maurice and Richard, in the next phase of your work, which I know will continue, how how are you looking to build that will, if that's what's necessary to advance these policies? Well, as you um, began this uh, podcast by referring to, I've been spending the last two years going around the country um, talking about this history, trying to motivate people to do something about it. Uh, I've developed a a list of 10,000 people now who've um, asked to be informed when a a new civil rights movement uh, uh, is uh, proposed. I'm working with a group of national civil rights leaders now to try to create a national committee to redress segregation. Uh, Of course, nothing's going to happen overnight. Probably won't happen in my lifetime, but it'll happen in all of yours. (laughs) (laughs) Maybe Morgan's. I I am confident uh, that progress is possible. As I say, people, um, as I said at the beginning, people are shocked when they hear this history. Once they know it, 
they want to do something about it. It takes organization. It takes uh, leadership, and uh, that's the next phase of what we need to develop. I'm, meanwhile, working on a sequel that describes okay. some of the, the policies that uh, are needed to redress it. But um, I, I emphasize over and over again that we can uh, talk about policies until we're blue in the face. If we don't have a popular movement demanding it, uh, the policies are just a, uh, an exercise, a, a narcissistic exercise. And I would say, you know, we are part of the movement. Uh, we, the movement needs to be much larger. But look, we are celebrating 40 years of making investments with these very explicit aspirations, $20 billion of investments, $60 billion of leverage funds to do mixed income housing, to work on schools, to work on assets and small businesses, uh, to help folks, uh, as Richard mentioned, stay in their places as gentrification is taking place. We're part of that movement. Uh, the movement needs to be much larger, mm-hmm. much larger for it to have impact in the way that we needed to have impact because the challenges are just pervasive mm-hmm. all over the country. But um, the, uh, the, if you will, foundations for the movement are there, and it's, it's how you take it to a level that is much greater than it is right now. Well, thank you very much for sharing your thoughts. Richard, again, thanks for joining us. To anyone who listen, I am saying this should be required reading in classrooms. So I'm, I'm doing my part. But, um, <laughs> but we appreciate all that you're doing to spread the word and try to build this movement. Yes, Richard. Thank thanks. you very much. Thanks for what you're doing, Richard. Appreciate it. Look forward to the sequel. Yes. Hey, well, I look forward to your forming that movement. <laughs> <laughs> very good. All right. All right. Thanks, thanks, everyone, for joining. Stay well. 